This week, we're going to talk more about the virtues, in particular, the theological virtues. Now, you remember in this episode about the virtues, we talked about virtue in general, that it's a firm habit of doing good. It's probably the most general way you could put it. But more importantly, we want to talk about supernatural rather than just natural virtues. You can have someone who might be godless, but also naturally virtuous. Being godless isn't a good thing, but to be naturally virtuous and sincerely trying to do the good as you know it, disposes you more towards the truth of God's existence and opens you more to his grace. So there's no knock on natural virtue. But supernatural virtue is important because we're talking about what's necessary for salvation. We can't be saved without God's grace. We can't merit salvation by naturally good acts. Salvation comes from God and God alone. Nothing we can do merits grace that he gives us. Once we live the life of grace, however, we can merit in the sense that by cooperating with God's grace, we can increase the life of grace within us. Strictly speaking, it's not merited because God owes us nothing. We're not saying that because we do such and such, God owes us more grace or anything like that. By merit, what we mean as Catholics is the economy of salvation that God himself instituted. The analogy I like to think of is when your parents give you an allowance, you're not actually meriting that because your parents owe you nothing. They gave you life. There's literally no way you could make them indebted to you in any way so that you might merit something from them, that you do a little bit of housework and then they're, they owe you money. They never owe you money. But they've set up a situation in which, by their generosity and grace, they allow you to merit, so to speak. And that's what the life of grace is for us. That's what merit is for a Catholic. Not saying that we can work our way to salvation. We can't merit the first grace God gives us. We can't merit by our own abilities and capacities and powers, naturally speaking. We can't merit heaven that way. In fact, we consider that a heresy. That's a grave error. So with that little caveat about merit, returning to the point, it's important that we talk about supernatural virtue because we're not talking about virtue, natural virtue as a way to get to heaven. We're talking about living the life of grace and living the virtuous life that is vivified by grace, the life of virtue elevated by grace, and that has its origin in grace. So supernatural virtues have their origin in God's grace, not in our action. We receive the supernatural virtues, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity, and all the supernatural moral virtues in seed form, so to speak, at our baptism. And the life of a Christian is cooperating with God's grace so as to increase these virtues all throughout our lives. In particular, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. You know, we always say we want to increase our faith or that we should hope in God and that we should love God above all things. But what do those terms faith, hope, and charity really mean? I gave the brief definitions from the Catechism of the Catholic Church in the episode on the virtues of this past week. But I'll give a little bit more definition to these terms so faith is a supernatural virtue by which we believe firmly, because of the supreme truthfulness of God, all that he has revealed and proposes through his church to our belief. So that means that faith is a grace given to us, and it's that grace by which we believe, not because we find the articles of faith, the truths of the faith to be credible, or because we've worked through them ourselves, but supernatural faith is believing because of who God is. That we're given the grace to believe everything that God reveals to us, not because we understand it, though we are called to try and understand the, the truths of the faith, but because of who the one who reveals it is. That is God, who is truth itself. He can neither deceive nor be deceived. So the, the virtue of faith is the great equalizer in the sense that you could be the most learned theologian or the most humble, uneducated peasant, but you are equal in the sense that the faith that you have is by grace, not by learning. 
the faith that you have is a grace given to you by which you can cling to and believe everything that God has revealed to us simply because he is God. And what we've been doing in this podcast from the very beginning up until now has mostly been trying to find the rationality, the reasons, trying to explain the various truths of the faith. But this is something very different. And this is something much more sure and certain than reasoning to it on our own. I can try and reason through various truths of science and mathematics and physics, and I could come to certain conclusions. But if a great genius in that field tells me something, tells me a particular equation in mathematics or physics or whatever, believing because he is a genius in the field makes a lot more sense and is much more sure foundation than any conclusion I come to based on my own reasoning. Now, this is just an analogy. When we're talking about God's grace, it's a whole different level because God is the creator, he's infinite wisdom, infinite truth, and we are mere creatures. But hopefully that analogy gives you some sense of what we mean here by faith. And to some people that are irreligious, it sounds like, oh, you're just blindly believing and it's irrational. Well, quite the opposite, actually. Like this analogy shows, it is eminently rational to believe someone who knows much more than you do. I couldn't tell you, and most people couldn't explain very clearly the different ideas of Einstein or name any other modern mathematician or physicist. They probably couldn't explain or work out themselves these various equations, but we can still say that we know that what these scientists and mathematicians found is true because of who they are. We rely on this kind of faith every day. I rely on the credibility and expertise of many people throughout my day, people who manufacture cars, uh, the pilot of an airplane, the people that build the various technology we use, the people that prepare my food. There's all kinds of faith that we exercise on a natural level. So, And it's not irrational. It makes sense that I believe these people because of who they are, that they have a certain kind of knowledge that I lack. That's what supernatural faith kind of is. That's what this definition is getting at. Because of who God is, it's even more rational to believe what he reveals, even if we can't understand it ourselves, than it is to believe an eminent scientist or physicist or engineer, because he is truth itself, whereas they are finite creatures with finite understanding of things. So obviously faith is necessary for salvation. We need that grace of knowing God and believing what he reveals in order to be united with him. There are certain things that are absolutely necessary for salvation, certain truths that we must affirm in order to be saved. Those truths would be, for example, that God exists and there's only one God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Word of God, became flesh, that he died for our salvation and redeemed us and rose again from the dead, and that God rewards those who do good and punishes those who do evil. So a very basic understanding of the Christian faith is absolutely necessary for salvation. There are other things that are necessary in the sense that God commands us to know these things. The prayer that he taught us, the Lord's Prayer, the articles of faith and the creed, the sacraments, certain moral obligations that we have as Christians. And we're not only called to believe these things, but also to profess them externally in our actions, by worship, by the way we live our lives. Faith as a theological virtue is given to us, as I said, at baptism. And even when we sin gravely, God forbid, but even when we sin gravely, uh, faith remains in us. It is dead, in a sense, because it's not enlivened, because we don't have charity, which we lose through through grave mortal sin. But the virtue of faith remains, and it can be re-enlivened once we confess our sins and receive absolution. But we can lose the virtue of faith by committing a sin opposed to it. For example, being an apostate, right, rejecting the Christian gospel altogether or being heretical, that is, rejecting a key point of the faith. By those sins, we can actually lose that theological virtue of faith. 
heresy is kind of one of those bad words, quote unquote, people like to kind of mock, but it's very clear that everyone understands what heresy is and everyone understands that to point out heresy is important. Even if it's in the kind of modernist doctrine nowadays, there are certain things that you can't believe or say, otherwise you're excluded from the community. Uh, that's all heresy is, is the rejection of some key point of Christian belief and to be obstinate in that. Now, of course, most people that aren't catechized very well probably believe things that aren't exactly true, and they might be in error on some points of the faith, but that might not be exactly their fault. But to be a heretic is to be obstinate in this error in belief. To claim, for example, no, Christ isn't divine, or no, the church isn't instituted by Christ, and to persist in that, despite knowing that it is a belief condemned by the church. By these sins opposed to the virtue of faith, you can actually lose the virtue of faith. Okay, we'll leave faith at that. Moving on to hope. So hope is the supernatural virtue by which we expect of God eternal beatitude and the means of attaining it because Christ has merited them for us and God has promised them to us and he is infinitely good, powerful, and faithful in his promises. So hope, kind of like faith, is based on who God is primarily. That God promised certain things to us and we trust in the fact that he is truth itself he is infinitely powerful, able to fulfill those promises. He is faithful to those promises. And that Christ has merited these promises of beatitude for us. And, of course, hope is necessary for salvation. The opposite of hope is despair. And what despair is, is not just being depressed or whatever. Despair is actually denying those things about God. That he is faithful to his promises. That he is infinitely powerful that Christ has merited these things for us. A failure in hope is not just you let yourself get down in the dumps. It's a denial of something about God. And when we actually commit the sin of despair, that is a sin opposed to hope, and we actually lose the virtue of hope. And with all three of these theological virtues, it's important from time to time to make acts of faith and hope and charity. That is, reaffirming in words or articulating in prayer these definitions, but doing so by raising your mind to God and saying, I do believe all that you've revealed because you are truth itself. I do hope in these promises of blessedness because you have promised them and you are infinitely powerful and trustworthy and faithful. And I trust in the merits of Christ's passion and death. We can sin against hope also, not just by despair, which is kind of a lack of hope, but also by presumption, which is saying, yeah, no matter what I do, God's going to, you know, get it done for me. That's a terrible sin. You know, to tempt God in that way to say, no matter what I do, God is basically going to give me what he promised and I can ignore all of the other things that he demands of me. Kind of connected to hope would be uh, trust in God's providence and to abandon ourselves to God's providence in the sense that not just not just that we don't do anything and expect God to take care of it, but that we trust no matter what is happening that God can turn all things to good and that God is the provident Lord of history and that he makes graces available to us in every moment. Sin is never inevitable. In any moment of temptation, in any moment of suffering, God offers us the graces necessary to uh, persevere through those difficulties, even though oftentimes we don't accept those graces. So that's the virtue of hope, trusting in God's power, trustworthiness, and promises. And most importantly, as St. Paul says, there remain these three, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love or charity. 
Charity is the one that will continue to exist in heaven, the other two passing away. Because we are not able to see God directly as we will in heaven, we rely on the virtue of faith, which is belief in things not yet seen. And hope is something that we need for the journey before before we reach our destination. Once we behold God, once we are enjoying the vision of God, we no longer need to hope for it. But charity is that which unites us to God directly. God's grace and charity, as St. Peter says, is a participation in the divine nature. It's our actual union with God. And of course, when we are in heaven, that doesn't fade away, but it's actually perfected. So what is charity? What's the definition? It's the most excellent of the virtues. It's the queen of all the virtues. It's that by which we love God for himself above all things. So when we say we love God for himself, it means we love him aside from any reward we expect from him. That we love him because he is the infinite good and is infinitely lovable. It's that good which ought to be desired above all things. Not because it's a means to some other good, but it is in fact the supreme good. So it's worthy of our love. So we love God for himself above all things and our neighbors as ourselves because of our love for God. So we don't just love our neighbors as ourselves because we recognize the equality of all, but we love them as ourselves because God commands this of us. We do it out of love for God and because we see God in the other person. They are made in his image and likeness. And we hear this precept all the time, right? That Christ says, sums up the law and the prophets, that we should love God above all things. We should love him with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we should love our neighbors ourselves. We hear those so often that they seem simple and almost trite sometimes because we say, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. But consider the, the words, to love God above all things and to love him with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Can we ever say that we've done that, really, and perfectly? Can we ever say that with our whole mind, heart, soul, and strength? We may have experienced moments of great devotion and fervor, But can we ever say that we've actually fulfilled that precept of the law? I know I haven't. And to love your neighbor as yourself, that's not just a nice thing, like treat them the way you want to be treated. It's see them as another self. Don't just help a poor person because you pity them, but because you see them as an extension of yourself. And you do that out of love for God, that you see them as someone made in God's image and someone you ought to love just as you love yourself. The things that you wish for yourself, you ought to wish and will for your neighbor as well. That's what that commandment means. How, How many times can we say we've actually done that? I don't think I can recall a moment when I really fulfilled that perfectly. So these are not trite statements. They are the fulfillment of the law, and so they carry profound meaning. Now, how do we lose charity? Well, actually, because charity is our very union with God, whenever we sin gravely, we kill the life of grace in our soul, then we lose charity. Every time we're in the state of grave sin, we do not have the theological virtue of charity. We have lost grace. We have lost charity. And so any serious sin causes our relationship with God to be entirely broken, severed, and and our souls die. That's why they're called mortal sins. And they require revivification in the sacrament of reconciliation. Now, even with all that, there's still much more to be said about the virtues, and perhaps we'll go into it even more in another episode. But thank you for listening to Catholic Daily Brief.